Welcome to Egg Annex Talks, a podcast brought to you by the agriculture brands of Annex Business Media. Join the teams behind Top Crop Manager, Potatoes in Canada, Fruit and Vegetable, Manure Manager, and Canadian Poultry Magazines for compelling conversations with some of the most important voices in Canadian agriculture. Bayer Crop Science is a proud supporter of influential women in Canadian agriculture. As a member of Canada's agricultural community, we recognize the hard work and contributions made by women to this important industry and support the sharing of their voices, stories, challenges, and achievements as a way to recognize everything they bring to the table each and every day. Hi, my name is Alex Bernard, editor of Fruit and Vegetable Magazine and Top Crop Manager East, and I'm speaking today with Karen Tonino, professor in the Department of Plant Sciences at the University of Saskatchewan. Welcome, Karen. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Karen is one of our IWCA winners for 2022, so we'll just be having a little bit of a chat about her perspectives on agriculture and her role in it. So on that topic, could you tell us a little bit about your current role and your background? Well, my current role is that I teach in the horticulture section in the Department of Plant Sciences, and I'm the undergraduate advisor to the horticulture science degree students. I'm a plant physiologist and study abiotic stresses, so cold, drought, heat, salt, etc. And in that way, I get to ask questions and conduct research on a wide range of crops from horticulture, the fruit, vegetable, ornamental plants, to large-scale field crops such as wheat, pulse crops, canola, etc. I completed my undergraduate and master's degree at the University of Guelph. My master's research was in cold hardiness in winter wheat in the Department of Crop Science, and I then went on to a PhD in cold hardiness at Oregon State University in the Department of Horticulture Science. So I changed countries, changed departments, but kept with the same discipline. I guess, you know, the roots of my interest in plants probably came from my grandfather, who had the best garden in the area. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And in fact, I took my first steps reaching out to pick one of his dahlias. Later, I was his right-hand person helping in the vegetable garden, making compost, picking fruit off the peach and pear trees. So I grew to be very comfortable with plants from an early age, and that's how everything started, I think. Excellent. What drove the shift from winter wheat into horticulture? Was it just simply the program that you wanted to be involved with, or was there a particular reason? Well, I transferred to the University of Guelph, and originally I wanted to go into horticulture, I think, again, because of my grandfather's influence, but horticulture science required a lot of prerequisites. And it would have well, it would have extended my degree by at least two years, two and a half years. But in crop science, I could utilize a lot of my transfer credits. So it was a lot easier for me to obtain a degree in agriculture uh, under crop science than under horticulture science. So that's why Initially, I went into crop science, but I really fell in love with physiology, you know, asking questions of how and why, how do plants function, why do they do this, and what happens. And so with plant physiology, it really enables you to work on, you know, a wide range of 
plants and ask those questions. It doesn't have to be horticulture science plants. It could be, you know, as I said, field crop plants. So I could still ask the same questions, but, you know, in crop science. But I gained the opportunity to move into the Department of Horticulture Science at Oregon State University. So, so I've got both. Actually, I've got ecology, crop science, as well as horticulture science. So it's, um, it's a diverse background, but it's a good background, I think. Yeah, from reading your, your nomination form, it seemed like you did have kind of that breadth of knowledge and that breadth of interests in terms of what you've studied and what you've worked on. So that's, I imagine it's one way of making connections that maybe folks who are a little more narrow focus, maybe they don't right. have the same sort of patterns. Yes, and I think that's important for undergraduate students, especially to keep your breadth and interests and courses open. I think it's important to do that because you never know where the next opportunities will come. And everything is connected. Yes. Now, what would you say you like best about your role? The freedom to innovate. So whether it is creating new academic programs here at the University of Saskatchewan or with other countries abroad, or trying to find answers to research questions. I also love talking with students and hopefully help them navigate their way through their academic programs. You know, the students have a lot of energy, and it keeps us older folks young. <laughs> so that's, that's what I like best about my roles, the, the innovation and interaction. Now, did you always want to end up in academics, or did you have a different career trajectory at any point? No, actually, I, I was always academically focused, so I never took a break. I went right through from undergraduate to master's to PhD and ended up here. So, yeah. Kudos for your tenacity, because my goodness, that that is a lot of schooling all at once. Yeah, it is. It is. But I loved it, so it didn't feel like a long haul. My supervisors may have felt otherwise, <laughs> but... <laughs> but I certainly enjoyed it. Could you tell us a bit about the biggest risk you've taken? Yes. Well, that's a really difficult question since I don't really feel like I've taken risks. There may have been many risks, but I did not consider them to be risky. You know, you end up making the best choices you can with the information you have and deal with the situations as they arise. I was born and raised in Canada. But I think that those who come from other countries, who speak other languages, and who are raised in other cultures are far more courageous and take far more risks than I. So in terms of my own risks, I can't really think of any, but I think a lot of other people, as I said, are more courageous than me. In a similar vein, could you talk about a particular challenge that you faced and what you learned from it? Uh, yes. Well, this is a bit of a long story. When I was in my third year ecology program at Ottawa University, I was allowed into a special research field course that was offered mainly to graduate students. And it was a field course to the Bay of Fundy to ironically examine the abiotic stresses, which I'm studying now, examine the abiotic stresses of the seaweed across the tidal gradient. I had no idea about research and in the end received a D in the course. 
Although I must say that looking back, I really did not receive much instruction either. At that time at Ottawa University, in order to move into fourth year, you could not have any Ds in your record. That course was the only one. So I had to graduate with a three-year degree, not a four-year degree as planned. Agriculture to me was always like applied ecology. So I decided to transfer to the University of Guelph. But Guelph had a policy that if you already held a degree, they would only transfer two years of credits, not the full three years. So yeah, what else was I to do but to give back my degree to Ottawa University? That request went all the way to the Senate, but somehow they allowed it. And I was only the second person in their history to return my degree. But that enabled me to transfer three years of credits and not lose any time at the University of Guelph. And that's also why I went into crop science. I went on to an MSc at Guelph and then a PhD at Oregon State University in the College of Agriculture. And I graduated with the top PhD thesis award for that year. I learned that it's important to provide students with sufficient guidance, not complete handholding, but at least enough to help them succeed. Failure is a two-way street. The message receiver or student should not be the only one to blame. The message giver or supervisor also needs to provide sufficient guidance and tools. So that's what I learned. And uh, hopefully I've implemented that across all my students here. I mean, the passion with which you speak about teaching and interacting with students makes me believe that's likely. (laughs) I hope so, yeah. And congratulations on obtaining the top award for your PhD thesis, but also like way to stick it to that professor. (laughs) (laughs) I know. They told me that I should not go into research. I mean, it goes to show how much influence one person can have, influence on your opportunities, but also you shouldn't be defined by that one grade. Exactly. One person can make a big difference. And we never know how much influence we have on students, on others, you know, and being in this privileged position, I think we really need to be cognizant of that. That was a positive story in the end, but in more positive news, what's a big accomplishment or defining moment? Well, I guess my defining moment, my biggest accomplishment must be when I was awarded this faculty position at the University of Saskatchewan. That was in July 1988. But actually, I was still completing my experiments and had not yet written my PhD thesis when I got my faculty position. But thankfully, the University of Saskatchewan waited for me until I defended my PhD in August the following year. So it was over a year later. I started teaching 200 students just two weeks later. And somehow the students and I made it through that period, and it's been busy ever since. (laughs) It's telling that they wanted you so badly that they waited for you. Yes, yes. I, I can't think of any other example where that's happened. And I was only the second female faculty member hired into the College of Agriculture and Bioresources at that time. If this speaks to your experiences... 
please feel free to answer, but if it doesn't, no worries. But did you find any challenges by being only the second female faculty member there? Mm. No, I did not feel any challenges. No, my male colleagues were very supportive. And I guess that's where having enough self-confidence comes into that even if I had difficult situations, I always felt that we could figure it out or something would happen and we could just, you know, move on. So yeah, that's the attitude that I took. That's fantastic. Did you do anything to cultivate that self-confidence or is it just something that you've found that you have naturally? I think it just comes naturally to me. You know, growing up, I had a lot of challenges, which fortunately I was able to overcome. And academically, I was lucky enough to win almost every award, even through, you know, public school. So that also reinforced my academic interests. So I think uh, even small awards to students in public schools from, you know, kindergarten and all the way up, that's important. But I've always had that. If I digress, I think about the time when I was in pre-kindergarten. So that's the year before. I was only about four years old and I was sick for a whole week. And we lived at least, oh, it felt like two miles away from the school, but it was a, a fair distance. So my mother would, you know, walk me to school. And uh, so, okay, I got better. She walked me back and I don't know, I could have sworn she said, all you have to do is take this note into the teacher and then I could go back home because I had a good time being at home. And I, <laughs> I don't know how, but this four-year-old convinced her teacher to let her go out of the school, walk out after I handed to the note. But of course, my mother wasn't there, right? She, she had walked home. So I thought, geez, where is she? So what I did, I flagged down a car. <laughs> <laughs> I hitchhiked home <laughs> four years old I I knew my address you know I memorized your address and the phone number and fortunately the car that I flagged down was a teacher another teacher so she gave me a drive home <laughs> I never forgot the uh, expression on my mother's face when <laughs> we knocked on the door <laughs> But anyway, I did that when I was four. So, yeah, so I guess you need a certain confidence to do that. So it's, it's kind of been there for a long time. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> what advice would you give to others who are thinking about pursuing a career in agriculture? Well, we talked a little bit about this, but, you know, as a student, I would provide advice to keep your background diversified. I think students need to be open and open to change and open to adapt because you never know what may be important and what information might be important. And so I think it is important to be open to possibilities and then go after them. And also as a student to make as many contacts and networks as possible through involvement in professional societies, presenting at conferences, volunteering, you know, getting to know your professors one-on-one. -on -one. 
you know, that's the best way. In addition to, you know, black and white CV, I think if you can network and put a face to that, that always helps in the long term. Finally, I would say mentorship. This award is called Women of Influence. And while I do think that women have a huge part to play in being a positive role model to our junior female colleagues and students, most of my mentors, because of that age and era, most of my mentors, in fact, were men. In fact, the person who nominated me for this award is a male. And I feel males could and should be equally strong supporters and mentors of females and vice versa. So that's what I would say. Excellent. And I think you're absolutely correct. We try to highlight women with this award, but it, it relies on others seeing what they're doing and saying it's deserving of recognition. And I think it goes every way. Everyone needs to recognize the good that others around them are doing because we all grow by being surrounded by good work. Exactly. And even though the gender profiles are changing and improving to be more balanced, it's still across the sciences, a male dominated area. And so I do think that men have a big role to play to encourage women and be mentors to women because there are more of them out there, right? And my mentors, most of them were men. Was there any piece of advice that you've received that really stuck out to you? That's a good question. I would say, try to say no more often. (laughs) (laughs) As a faculty member, uh, don't get spread out too thin. As much as possible, try to be true to your area of interest. You know, I've been very lucky to have had many excellent students, but I would also do a more thorough job at screening students at the front end and have students write their theses in paper format as we are doing now, and if possible, publish their papers before they defend and before they go off and get great jobs. So I guess that's the advice I would give to myself. I think you have already answered this one a little bit, but just to put a finer point on it, what keeps you excited about agriculture? Oh, well, I'm thinking about the areas of uh, study in emerging areas. And in horticulture, I would say urban agriculture and urban greening. You know, we often hear about, you know, world population will increase to 10 billion by 2050. But what we do not often hear is that close to 70% of that population will be living in cities. Therefore, the beautification and greening of our urban environment, as well as horticulture crop production in the urban and peri-urban regions, will become even more important in future. Therefore, while many companies and farms in the larger agriculture industry are merging or increasing in size, in horticulture, there's also opportunities for many entrepreneurs and individuals to grow their own food and create a beautiful environment with ornamental plants. To take that to an even smaller scale, thinking about home indoor year-round food production, In northern climates, we heat our homes and schools 
in communities here and across the north. So the limiting factor is not heat, but light. My husband has in fact inspired me to be more aware of the importance of selecting and breeding for low light tolerant crops. He's bred low light tolerant citrus, lemon and lime that can flower and fruit on a windowsill in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I figure if you can do it for that, you can do it for almost anything. So being able to grow our own food year round is not only functional, but also psychologically satisfying to have plants year round in our homes, especially, you know, during the winter months. I'm also excited about all the great students coming along and uh, all the potential out there. They've got great ideas and they've got the energy to make some changes happen. Excellent. And as things are changing kind of drastically the past decade, the coming few decades, it'll be more important than ever to have that adaptability and those new ideas. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And we're on to the big crystal ball question. How do you see the agriculture industry changing in the next five to 10 years? And what would you like to see more of? Well, you know, I think agriculture has always been an optimistic discipline. We plant seeds or transplants in the spring with the expectation that they'll grow and produce food or beautify our life. Like that, we conduct research and work on various projects with the expectation that we can help to contribute to improve and stabilize agricultural productivity, reduce risk to the farmer, you know, be environmentally sustainable and improve the quality of life. But climate change has presented a lot of challenges in agriculture, but also more opportunities to adapt. I'm an environmental stress physiologist, and my approach to improving plant adaptation is to focus on avoidance of stress. That's important for students to avoid stress, and it's important for plants too. So whether it's the possibility of seeding annual crops in the fall, so switching the seeding time from spring to late fall, or very early in the spring, or developing new seed treatments, enabling faster emergence and greater root growth under cool soil temperature conditions in the early spring, so maturity is advanced to avoid the midsummer drought and heat, or targeting common plant structures and mechanisms which enable the plant to resist not just one stress. And we often research, when you look at all the the various papers out there, they're talking about one stress, cold stress, or heat stress, or drought stress. But I think it's important to really look at multiple stresses, because that's what the plants will be experiencing. And we don't know what stress will be prevalent from one year to the next. Last year, It was, you know, drought and heat this year in certain regions. It was flooding, like in Manitoba. So, you know, looking at common key plant structures and mechanisms to resist multiple stresses, and not only abiotic stresses, but also disease and insect pests too. So looking at kind of the the center of that Venn diagram kind of a thing, trying to find that. And on a daily basis, we're gaining a greater insight and understanding at all levels, in an ecologic to field scale to whole plant cellular and molecular regulation. 
And what I'd like to see is more continuing integration between those disciplines, such as plant physiology with molecular genetics, breeding, as well as ecology, agronomy, environmental sustainability, and soil health. What I'd also like to see is more extension and outreach and the translation of our research to the general public. Podcasts like this, I think, uh, really help, and I appreciate your energy and effort to do this. Uh, thank you for assisting me in that and for sharing the information with us. Dissemination is one thing, but having the expertise and the ability to make that research and that information accessible in terms of understanding. I can provide the platform, but you have the, you have the know-how that gets people the answers they need. Yeah, and you know, traditionally, researchers are relatively introverted. We're not that extroverted, you know, and so we're not used to getting in front of a microphone and we're not used to, you know, being out there in the public realm. But I've been increasingly aware of the importance of doing that and to really go beyond our comfort zone, basically, and to uh, provide the public with the information because after all, it's the general public and the industries who have provided us with a lot of the funding, who pay our salaries. And so we owe it to them to tell them what we're doing. So I think it's important. Oh, and you never know who you'll inspire by sharing that information. They could be your next students. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Thanks for tuning in to Egg Annex Talks, the podcast hosted by the agriculture brands of Annex Business Media. You can subscribe to Egg Annex Talks wherever you listen to podcasts or visit eggannex.com to catch up on all of our other episodes.